uh, I got involved in a bank bank scam that was huge. Like I only got it. I only got maybe say a million, two million. The guys who got the money was the vice president of the bank. They got eighty million. So they busted the vice president, and they forgot about my million dollars. I see all the jurors getting limousine. The next morning, I went up to the prosecutor. Are you guys morons or what? You got all the jurors riding the limousine. You don't think John Gotti's going to reach one of those jurors? He's going to pay off a juror, bribe him, and he's going to win this case. They, Sal, you're looking at too much television. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. I predicted it. And of course, years later, Sammy, Sammy the Bull told the story. That's exactly what they did. They paid off a witness, 60 Gs, and Gotti became a superstar. One time I had jocked the truck and brought it to Jimmy. We went into the building. He said, I'll give you 72000 And I go, wait a minute, let's think about this. Let me call Dom. I called Dominic up. He came back down in an hour. Jimmy said, okay, I'll give you 90000 I go, we were hijacking so many trucks. We would get information from the guys who worked at Kennedy Airport. Well, we hijacked a truck full of Italian shoes. When I got it over to Jimmy Burke, I would call up. He said, come over quickly. You got a problem. Got the guy coming, the Jewish guys coming to look at these Beautiful Italian shoes. You got a problem. I go, what's the problem? You got 8,000 pairs of shoes, but they're all left. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm going to be doing an interview with Salvatore Polisi and Adrian Martinez. It's going to be a super interesting interview. Uh, Adrian's going to be helping me out. Uh, he knows all about Sal. And uh, so it's going to be about an hour interview. So I appreciate you guys watching. Check out the interview. So where where were you, you know, where were you born? Were you, was this in, um, you know, New York, New Jersey? Brooklyn, New York. And I had an Italian family. I had an uncle that was deeply entrenched in the mob. Actually, uh, my uncle and I think, the guy that was my father, because I'm not sure. My uncle might have been my father. My father might not have been my father. But in the late 20s, 29, 30, like a couple of years before, you know, Prohibition ended, they were driving a horse and wagon from Long Island, bringing bulls up to New York City. So they were 20, 21 years old, involved in crime. And they knew all these criminals. So my uncle Tony stayed with crime his whole life because he was a gambler. He was a swashbuckling, you know, high-energy guy who drove fancy cars, pinky diamond rings, beautiful women. And eventually in the 60s, he got involved with a guy named Sonny Francis. A lot of people knew he was. Of course, That's Sonny Michael Francis, is right. Right, you Michael. Know. I met Michael in 78 after he got made, shook his hand, didn't see him, oh my God, until 2013. We did a show for uh, National Geographic together, and they trucked us around the limousine. And, after you know, I said, Michael... I go, Michael, you realize you were royalty. I was in the street. You didn't have to do what I did. You didn't rob no banks. White collar crimes. Yeah, yeah. You know, Michael was very smart, very shrewd. So, you know, you never know who you're going to meet. And then 30, 40 years later, you meet him again or you read about him. Yeah. Uh, so I started out with my uncle in a gambling operation. From there, I got involved with a guy who came out of prison that was close to Carmine Persico, his name was Little Dom, Dominic Cataldo, and he was the hitman. So the thing about Cataldo was his dad and my uncles and dad, they all knew each other in the 30s. So instantly, that's what gives you credibility, family. And I got involved with him, and he taught me the ropes. I mean, I used to watch him do hijackings. I wasn't allowed to go near the truck. I would just go to the building where they unloaded the truck. 
And when they unloaded the truck, I met a guy who I thought was really clever. And his name was Jimmy Burke, which was the same guy that, that De Niro played. And believe right. me, I, I love Jimmy Burke. He was smart. He was smarter than Scorsese painted him. He was slick. I mean, he was a gangster's gangster. He was a great guy. One time I hijacked the truck and brought it to Jimmy. We went into the building. He said, I'll give you 72000 I don't remember. It was like South American coats, women's coats. And I go, wait a minute. Let's think about this. Let me call Dom. I called Dominic up. He came back down. In an hour, Jimmy said, okay, I'll give you 90000 He upped it 18, just like that. So he was the guy who was sharp. He would play the cards. I mean, you know, try to get over on buying stuff because he knew it was stolen. And we did well together. Eventually, I was in jail with him. I knew his wife, Mickey. They had guards in the penitentiary that were corrupt. I knew his daughter, Kathy. His son, Frankie, worked for me. He was a car thief. So I knew the family. We were like thick as thieves. That's what they say. Yeah, no, I mean, so Sal, really, you really, at the beginning, just started off with gambling. And then eventually, it just led into more and more crimes and bank robberies, heists, and different stuff like that. And in the beginning of this interview, too, you talked about doing uh, white collar crimes. And, you know, that was that's what, you know, Matthew was involved with as well. So, I mean, what what did that look like? Was that in the earlier years as well? I'm assuming. No, that was that was in the later years. Um, I left New York City. I had a million dollars and I went upstate New York about 100 miles. I built a racetrack. I actually had two stock car races. there. I spent about a million dollars in three years. Then. I was property poor and broke. So I went back and said, I'll take a shot. Uh, I'll sell cocaine because cocaine in 80, 81, 82 was really hot. It wasn't sure. You know, it's the drug of choice. And I got busted selling the cocaine. So, I mean, at that how did, point. What, how'd you get busted? Uh, you know, I got caught with my hand in the cookie jar. I had a little blonde girl selling coke for me. You know, they caught her. They they wrung her out. They flipped her. And, they, and she told them who who was giving her the coke, and oh my God, this guy's on the triangle up there in Queens with all the other mob guys. But at that point, that was like 84, right around that time I had done a few, you know, computer crimes. One of them happened to be, uh, you know, in competition with Gotti. He didn't know it, but uh, I got involved in a bank, bank scam that was huge. Like, I only got it, I only got maybe, say, a million, two million. The guys who got the money was the vice president of the bank. They got $80 million. So they busted the vice president, and they forgot about my million dollars. That was like 1982. Well, when I flipped with the FBI, I met a guy. I said, what do you do? You're an agent. I'll never forget it. His name was Peyton. And I thought of Walter Peyton because he was black. So I do uh, bank frauds and paper crimes. They go, really? Like, what kind of bank frauds? I said, you ever hear of the chemical bank where the $80 million was? He said, oh, yeah. I said, you get all the money? Because I was the cooperating witness at the point. He said, we got all of it but about a million. I go, oh. I said, did you know that that Joel D. Cohen, the coin dealer, moved that million? He said, how would you know that? He got all flustered. He was guarding me, and my agent came in and says, come here, take a walk with me. He said, don't ever talk about that again. We're going to forget you mentioned it. But I was very egotistical back in those days. And I just yeah. got to tell the feds, hey, look, I got raised a million. And by the way, Dottie was involved in that. And he was ripping off the guy who could move the money. He was only giving him 10 or 15%. When I met the guy, I said, look, I'll give you 50% of the money that you moved from that bank to my bank. 
go, that's amazing. So I gave him 50%. And we made like, you know, a million, million and a half each. That was the first time I did any paper crime. That's what I, I called it. It wasn't like a violent crime. It was a funny crime. But it wasn't like a crime that where I got excited. I got excited with the gun jumping yeah. running board of a truck or robbing a bank or something like that. I learned that you could make a lot of money in the 80s with, you know, with the stock market and all that kind of stuff. But it didn't excite me. So once I flipped and left, I went and found other things and how to make money legitimately. And boy, oh boy, did I have a run. I haven't told anybody those stories, but maybe this year we'll start letting some of that out. Yeah. Well, I mean, going back to like when you were, you said you were a, a teenager and you, um, like when did you first start getting into, you know, basically do, uh, working with the mob? I mean, at what age, like, you know, we just jumped, we just did a huge yeah, we did. mob year jump. Yeah, we did. When I oh. was 20, when I was 20, which was 1965, I was 20 years old in 65. My uncle had a gambling operation. So he taught me gambling in New York. In those days, there was no lotto. There was no off-track betting. You know, so the mob had like a license. You know, you had bookmaking and then you had loan sharking and they had numbers. Once the city and the state started to change all that, the mob lost their power, but they didn't want to admit that. So in my 20s, I got involved with my uncle which led me to this guy, Cataldo, Dominic Cataldo. He was a professional killer, hitman, and he was a con. He was he was a con artist because he became a made guy on the combine person go. So by the time I was 22, 23, I was under his wing, and I was spoken for. In those days, the boss would know. This was after Joe Colombo got shot, which was 72. The boss would know who was with that family, and I was officially with the Columbos. Even though I jockeyed back and forth with John Gotti, which was Gambino's, I was officially listed with the Columbo. So Gotti had no power over me. I just had to walk a fine line because he was an interesting guy. Uh, you know, he, he wouldn't take any crap for anybody. But I played with him, and he played with me. He was a lot brighter than most people think. Oh, yeah. To be a boss of a crime family, hell yeah. I mean, those guys said it'd be geniuses. <laughs> Right. I mean, in the wrong, in the, in the wrong, in the wrong field, but you know what I mean? You have to be really smart to be a boss of one of those. So I started to do all that stuff, you know, in my, in my twenties, by the time I got, of course, by the time I was 26, my uncle had gone away for bank robbery with Sonny Franzese. They were on this national bank robbery investigation and it was my dream to rob a bank. So I did rob a bank with two older guys. It's in the book. One guy was funny. They were both in their 60s. And these guys had been released from uh, Alcatraz. And one guy said, look, we don't have a lot of time to rob the bank because I got diverticulitis. And the other guy said, what the hell do you care? He said, I got colitis. So one guy couldn't take a shit. And the other guy was shitting all day long. And they couldn't jump over the counter. So we were like a comedic uh, three stooges. And I ran in there, leaped over the counter, 26, scooped up the money. And I eventually learned a lot from them and moved on because, you know, all they could do is hold guns on everybody in the bank. And, you know, I wanted I wanted more than just 26,000. That was the first bank. After that, I hit them for 70, 80. And in those days, Matthew, no camera, no plastic glass, plexiglass, okay? No armed guards in banks. And by the way, 
Nobody used credit cards in 1970, 70, 71. Right. They used like Diners Club or something, you know? So there was one thing in the bank. And they asked, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. And yeah. that's what I laughed all the way. You know, we did some tricky stuff. And it, was Matthew, it was a lot of fun. I don't know if you guys recently seen, there was uh, in the news, they had this, like maybe like a few days ago, they had posted, there was a ma mafia guys in New York, like associates of the Lucchese family. They went and tried to rob a bank. Or not a bank, but a jewelry store. And what had happened was, they all got busted, literally, I think, you know, ne the next day they had phone calls, they had all this stuff, and boom. I mean, the, the, the stuff Sam was talking about, I mean, you can't do this. You can't get away with it unless you're no. some super tech genius. I mean, this stuff yeah. doesn't exist anymore, but. No, I mean, too many cameras, man, on every block, you know. And that's why these stories are so I don't, I don't know what you did, but you probably did paper crimes. But how long ago was that? How many years? Um, it was probably what, uh, about roughly 18 years ago. Oh yeah. A lot different. <laughs> yeah. We didn't have Google then. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so Matthew, do you want to kind of start talking about his, uh, his involvement with the Sinatra club and with. Yeah. What, what, at, at what point, what were you doing? So that, that was in your early twenties. You're saying now. You know, when did you get involved in the Sinatra Club? Did you open the club or? Here's what happened. I got shot by a cop. I was driving a Corvette and he tried to pull me over. And I went past him. He shot and the back window of the Corvette went in, went into my spine. So I had to get a surgery to get, get the bullet out. When I came out, my arm was in a sling. Cataldo picked me up. So let's go see these guys over in this little club they got. It was only like 10, 20 blocks from where I lived. I said, whose club is it? Oh, it's Danny and Charlie Fatico's. I go, oh, he's in the Gotti's hangout there. But nobody knew who John Gotti was in 71. So we go there and I see this scurvy little place, dirty tables, mixed up chairs, you know, stinky place. And we left. And I said, hey, Dom, why don't we open up a nice little club? I'll get, because I had money. I was dealing drugs. We were living, Cataldo and I were living a secret within a secret because we weren't supposed to tell anybody we were dealing drugs, but we were, him and I. So we had a lot of money and I always made believe I made another score and had pockets full of money. So I went and got this little building. I put nice chairs in, nice tables. And on Monday nights in the fall of 71, football, NFL football was nine o'clock at night and everybody would gather to pay off your weekly debts or winnings collect pay whatever and we would meet at the sinatra club and exchange you know who won who lost and after the nine o'clock game went on because it was network tv there was no such thing as cable in new york at that time we'd watch the game and play 10 cent 20 cent poker well the 10 20 cent poker went to 50 cents and then they opened up a dollar table buried by the u.s government and ignored by the national media this is the story they don't want you to know when Frank Amadeo met with President George W. Bush at the White House to discuss NATO operations in Afghanistan, no one knew that he'd already embezzled nearly $200 million from the federal government, money he intended to use to bankroll his plan to take over the world. From Amadeo's global headquarters in the shadow of Florida's Disney World, 
with a nearly inexhaustible supply of the Internal Revenue Service's funds, Amadeo acquired multiple businesses, amassing a mega conglomerate. Driven by his delusions of world conquest, he negotiated the purchase of a squadron of American fighter jets and the controlling interest in a former Soviet ICBM factory. He began working to build the largest private militia on the planet, over one million Africans strong. Simultaneously, Amadeo hired an international black ops force to orchestrate a coup in the Congo while plotting to take over several small Eastern European countries. The most disturbing part of it all is, had the US government not thwarted his plans, he might have just pulled it off. It's insanity. The bizarre, true story of a bipolar megalomaniac's insane plan for total world domination. Available now on Amazon and Audible. By the time, I want to say by the time January came, we had three tables. I had good catered food in there, good booze. And I had a couple of fine working professional women a block away. And the guys could go visit the girls. It was like I was sort of taking, taking a leave from Vegas, how they treated gamblers in Vegas. And that place ran, uh, you know, until February of 72. And that's when Gotti came out. Well, Gotti had made such an impression on other guys, especially drug dealers. Not that he was dealing drugs. They liked him. And he started bringing all these guys in. He said, look, I'm bringing all this, these players in. Some of them are high rollers. So we said, Dominic Cataldo, so let's give you a piece of the action. So we gave him 20% of the game. So if we cut 5000 for the week, he got 1000 Basically, he got money to gamble. He blew, blew it anyway every week. He wasn't a good card player. He was a terrible gambler, by the way. In contrast to Jimmy Burke, who was a great gambler. Jimmy Burke should have been in Vegas. He could count every card. Brilliant guy. I love the guy. And he had a stone face and it was hard to beat him. So Gotti, you know, he wasn't a good gambler, but we had a lot of fun. And a lot of crime took place there. The meeting of all kinds of guys. I mean, guys that came in there, uh, the famous informant, Willie Boy Johnson, sat at the table who Gotti eventually had killed. I mean, he was giving information to the feds for like 20 years. We had all kinds of people there. It was really an interesting mix, and it was only a block and a block and a half from where I lived. My Sinatra Club was on 87th Street. Gotti's Club was on 100 and um, let me see, 100 and I think it was 108th Street. So he was like 15 blocks away. But the neighborhood had several clubs with different families having their club. But my, I had the classiest club. I had nice chairs, nice tables. And I called Italian restaurants, Chinese restaurants, and brought in catered food to feed the guys. Yeah, and Matthew, the whole premise of the Sinatra Club is that there's, it was important because there was always these internal wars going on with all the five crime families in New York, or there's beefs between other factions and families and stuff like that. But they would always come to the Sinatra Club that Sal had opened up with uh, his partner, Dominic Cataldo, and they would... Uh, all get along there. They gamble. They set up certain different crimes, heists, whatever they wanted to do, and they just get along there. So I mean, it was a it was, it was a, a neutral. It was a neutral spot. It was a church. Yeah, yeah. sleep house. Yeah, yeah. How did you yeah. come up with uh, the Sinatra Club? Why? Oh, that that that's a great question. So we had this one guy there who was about three hundred pounds, and we started to play like you know for a couple hours. Then it started to get into, by the winter, we'd stay there 18, 20 hours. 
Well, this guy was about 300 pounds, and he never washed. He stunk. So I'd bring him a can of right guard, and, and he was a fat guy, and I called him Roundy. I go, Roundy, go in the bathroom, spray yourself. I know you can't miss a hand. You don't want to miss any hand. So eventually, uh, you know, his mother would call. We had a payphone in there and called. I go, Roundy, it's your mother. Ma, what do you want? What do you want? She's, where are you? You haven't been home for two days. Where are you? And he looked over, and there was a jukebox that we had put in there. I had one of the guys steal the jukebox. It came from a Polish bar. I said, get rid of those, you know, Buffett, or whoever it was, the Polish singers. And Sinatra had retired, so I'd go buy all these Sinatra records and stick it in there. And, you know, the top would come up. You didn't have to pay. He looked over at the jukebox and said, Ma, I'm at the Sinatra Club. <laughs> and that's, that's working. And we, we laughed. We said, yeah, it's a good name for this place, the Sinatra Club, 1972. And, the, and that, that roundy, he was, uh, what was it, uh, Carmine Galante's nephew or something? Yeah, yeah, he was the wise guy's nephew. And, uh, yeah, he was the character. I mean, a lot of these guys got killed along the way after... I mean, I closed the Sinatra Club 74. I went to federal prison. So we had it for three years. But it was three years of, like, Disneyland, man. Disneyland for the mob. I mean, you know, it was, it was funny. It was a funny place. Every week there would be stolen merchandise, all kinds of things going on there. You know, the only thing, we didn't allow any women in there. So They were down the block. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So... Well, I was going to say, you just reminded me of something. I wish I could remember his name. Uh, the guy, they call him uh, the Chin. He used to walk oh, around. Vincent the Chin. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So one of the guys underneath him was my celly. Oh, <laughs> for, like, really? for like two months. He was really? called uh, Lamb or somebody like that. Or I forget. I want to, I forget his name. Um, he had gone to prison for... Well, first of all, he went to prison for like three or four years. Mm -hmm. And then just as he was about to get out, the feds re-indicted him oh. on like tax evasion or something. Yeah. And so he went uh, for another, um, he had to do another like four years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the... I, I think he'd only been arrested one time. And I remember he was, listen, he was, I, I said, he was the coolest guy, you know, of course he's in, you know, he's locked up. He's got, you know, they've got, he's got somebody cooking for him. So right. three people are going to commissary. He's buying right. everything out of the kitchen. You know I mean? He's got money, but he's got nothing to do. Um, so that so, was Vincent, Vincent Chaganti was the thing, the chin. Oh, okay. But, but this guy but, was, yeah. Matthew's talking about someone that was a cellmate that was under yeah. Benson. But right. We, I'm not sure. I can't believe I can't remember his name. He was the what coolest guy. Where, where were you? Which one? I was in Coleman. Coleman Federal. Uh, this was in, no, this was in the low, at the Coleman in the low. Wow. Um, And he'd just been re-indicted. Like, he'd been re-indicted. Like, a, he had maybe a year or two to go. Damn. Uh. Anyway, he, I, I just, I always remember he said, he said, I, I've but prior to this uh, this arrest, he said I have only been arrested one time. Wow! And they dropped the charges, and I was like, "Wow!" I said, "Really?" I said, "Why'd they drop the charges?" He said, "You know," he said, "This guy," he said, "I owned a construction company," and he said, "One of the guys that owned the construction company, or what? Sorry, one of the guys that worked at the construction company had lent money, and." 
the guy, one of the guys wasn't paying, the, couldn't pay the money. And he said, oh, well, I forget the guy's name. Let's say it's John or, or Anthony. Let's say he goes, well, you just wait till Anthony finds out. He goes, and because the, he goes, well, the guy got scared and went to the feds and right. the state and got wired up. Oh, boy. He said, came back and said, well, what if I don't pay? What's, what's Anthony going to do? He said, oh, listen, he said, you don't want to know what Anthony's going to do. And he started, he went on and on and he's going to do this. He's going to have, get your, whatever, break your fingers or do something. And so he then, so they went out and got an indictment, grabbed the guy that made the threat. So they've got all these guys. They've got the main guy who wore the wire. They have the guy that said Anthony's going to hurt him. And so they take, so they come and they surround this guy's house. And uh, he wasn't even at the house. He said, I was at my girlfriend's house. He said, my wife calls me at my girlfriend's house and says, hey, you, you, your fucking house is surrounded. So he's all right. All right. Go out there. He's called the lawyer. Tell him I'll turn myself in, you know, Monday. So he, he said, on Monday, I turn myself in. I get right back out. And I said, so what happened? He said, um, yeah, he said they dropped, they had, they had dropped the charges like four five, six months later. I said, why? And he goes, you know, that guy, that guy, that the guy that wore the wire. And I said, right. He said, he, uh, he, he had like an accident. Oh, and I went, yeah, what right. an accident. And he goes, right. I said, what do you mean an accident? He said, um, you know, they, they, I said, like, like he, he got hit by a car accident. He said, ah, they, they found him in a, um, they found him in a dumpster. Oh, and I said, well, man. oh, was he a garbage man? I said, like, <laughs> you know, did he slip and fall in the compactor <laughs> and ended up in the dumpster? Or he said, you know, you know, Matt, I like you. He said, but, you know, when you wear wires uh, uh, back then on people, he said, you know, you tended to have accidents. Yeah. Right. He said he had an accident. Right. They dropped the charges. Because yeah. then I got arrested like 20 years later. And he said, for this fucking thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's, 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 it, yeah. Yeah. No, they got their humor, like like Sal had said, like John Gotti and uh, his brother, Gene, or one of them, you know, yeah. just the same thing. I mean, they just had, they were really, they just moved on with life after doing something like that. And, yeah. John was, John was extremely witty. He's a very witty guy. He was. And uh, he was always ahead of everybody else. They would just, you know, they'd follow him. And I mean, even the older guys who were made guys, they trusted him. They really trusted him completely. And they bought into his visions, which was, you know, cool. He wasn't a drug dealer, but he was around all these drug dealers. And they all gave him money. But he was a gambler, a bad gambler. So he could lose a lot of money. And this guy could lose fifty or $100,000 on a weekend betting football games you know <laughs> no kidding I, I mean uh, Matthew so you were bringing up some stories about prison and the commissary and everything do you want Sal because he was kind of at that point where he had got arrested but in prison he kind of had the same situation with like I'm wondering oh listen back then they had it way better than we have yeah, he did. Had, oh, yeah. like you guys could do some like it's practically state prison where I was at um yeah uh, so when, so after the Sinatra called, what it, did you get arrested at, during that time? I mean, no, I got out. I won a case. I only did like 12 or 13 months. I got 25 years and I manipulated the system. I actually set a law in federal court in, uh, in the Eastern district of New York. And when I got out, I had met some guys in 
in prison that was simply genius. I'm telling you, a guy who's the funniest guy, every once in a while I would do a rendition about him. And he was actually the subject for Bronx Tale. And his name was Fat Gigi Inglis, Louis Inglis. Big, heavy set guy like this, like 300 pounds. And how I got his attention was I was in Lewisburg Penitentiary, but outside they had the farm. And a friend of mine, she had a brother-in-law that was on the farm. And so my wife would drive up with his wife and I'd say, buy some Dunhill cigars. In those days, three or four dollars was a lot of money for a cigar. It was like a, you know, Cuban cigar. So Frankie outside the wall would come in for lunch and he'd hand me four or five cigars. Well, I'd take this one cigar and go over and see Fat GG. This is this guy who made mega, mega millions. He was part of the Purple Gang, okay? And he would sit outside. It was a nice day out. He'd turn the chair around, smoke the cigar. He'd be making love to the cigar. Like a cigar in prison was like, look, you're in prison, you know. And he would tell me stories, amazing stories. I got some of them. It'd take me half an hour to tell the story. But what happened was my name was Lubats, which meant crazy in Italian. He goes, Lubats. He says, you're 28 years old. What are you going to do when you get out of here? Now, he had a he had a Harlem accent, different from Brooklyn. When the Harlem guys from the Bronx talk, they, they spit. They go, hey, fucking Lubats, what are you, you going to do when you get out of here? Got this big belly, smoking a cigar, drooling, right? I go, I don't know. He's put you hijacked trucks, you uh, bank. You got to give that up. You got to move ahead to what? You got to invest. Invest in what? In a spoon and a strainer. And you mix drugs. You can get drugs for 5,000 an ounce. You can bring back 40,000. You could step on it 18 times. These guys were professional drug dealers. This guy was in the middle of Harlem. I mean, they dealt with Frank Lucas and the gang up there. So I said, oh, really? He says, well, I said, well, who, who would I look for? He says, when you get out, don't worry, I'll set you up, you know? Well, I thought about it. And once I found out my friend Foxy, my crime partner, was killed by the Tommy D. Simone guy, that was it. No more guns, no more robberies. I immediately went into drug business. Now, in 75, 76, it might not sound like a lot of money. I was making 25000 a week cash. That sounds like a lot of money. That was a brand new Chevy was thirty five hundred. A Lincoln was eight thousand. A Porsche was twelve thousand. So twenty five thousand a week. I could buy a house every other week. But <laughs> he was right. Fat GG was right. That's where the money was. The drugs, and it was heroin. And I learned the business. I mean, never got busted for heroin. Never. Right. But anyway, you know, I was doing all kinds of things. Right. At a Corvette shop, I owned eleven Corvettes, a Porsche two jewelry stores, the real estate business, never got busted, never. So I did that for about, oh, five, six, seven years, and I wanted to get out of New York City. So I went and bought 100 acres upstate New York, and I, I built a racetrack. Spent about a million dollars up there, but it wasn't meant for me to make money in the racetrack. In those days, nobody even knew what NASCAR was in 1980-81. It was just starting to get on television. And, you know, I was living... The thing I found out, you probably could identify with this, Matthew, you're making a lot of money illegally and you're spending and spending and spending. Once you stop making the money, if you don't stop spending, you're going to go backwards quick. Right. You know, the old expression was, 
Yeah, I was dealing drugs. And then what happened? I started to eat like a bird and shit like an elephant. <laughs> Everything's going out, nothing's coming in. So, yeah, you learned your lessons. You know, it was an interesting life. I left New York. About that time, though, Gotti was making the move. And I was still around him. I still knew all those guys, you know. And uh, they were moving up. They were whacking out guys. He was already made, became a captain. By the time 84 came, it wasn't long before he had visions of taking over the whole family, which he did the following year in 85. By that time, I had already uh, went into the program, testified against the judge. I was sitting in Texas. What, what happened with that? How did, how did that come about? Well, I had this judge that I used to pay off in Queens. If I got arrested, I'd pay the judge off to throw the case out. Or I went to another judge. We had judges that were taking money. We could do anything we wanted there in state court, not federal. Right. So uh, I got busted, and I, I went to the feds. I said, look, because I could fix that case. It was a cocaine case in the state of New York. I'll fix this case, and I'll do it while you guys wire me up. I don't need you because I can beat this case. But I want out of New York when kids were teenagers. I got to get them out of New York. And I did that undercover. He got busted. He went to jail. The judge, I went to the witness protection program. And the moron U.S. Marshals put me down in Texas. And they said, well, this is where you should be. You got to blend in. How the fuck is a New York guy going to blend in Texas? I felt like Cousin Vinny, you know, in, in the South. So... I had a hard time doing that. Both my kids were good athletes. And I was hanging out thinking I was done with the government. But once you learn that the government had a contract and it said I had to appear, you know, at any trials, just about that time the year went by after Gotti killed Castellano, okay? And they had a RICO case on him. And he said, you're, they brought me up to Detroit. They interviewed me for three days. You're going to be the first witness in a gaudy, racketeering Rico case. I go, you can know you're the best storyteller. We got New York to go. All right, so I go to New York, and the case opens up in, in uh, the, uh, the fall of 86. And I'm watching what's going on. I go downstairs secretly in the courthouse with two-way mirrors, and I see these two limousines back up in the garage. And I'm waiting for the van to take me out Hide me out in New Jersey. I see all the jurors getting in the limousine. The next morning, I went up to the prosecutor. Are you guys morons or what? You got all the jurors riding the limousine. You don't think John Gotti's going to reach one of those jurors? He's going to pay off a juror, bribe him, and he's going to win this case. They, Sal, you're looking at too much television. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. I predicted it. And of course, years later, Sammy, Sammy the Bull told the story. That's exactly what they did. They paid off a witness. 60 G's, and Gotti became a superstar. Yeah, he did. He was, he was a public figure. The public loved him, and, I mean, you know, the mob loved him. And there I was down in Texas for the next few years, and I got involved in Hollywood quietly. I used a Jewish name. I started writing. I was good at it. I, got, I sold a couple <laughs> of scripts. I worked with great writers. I had a lot of fun, you know. I slept with the first wife, got a young gal. Got her, got a daughter, got a new son. And I was inventing toys and doing all kinds of legal stuff. I didn't do anything legal after they gave me a new name. Never, never again. Never again. And had fun. 
what was the new name? I don't tell anybody that name. No. <laughs> how long? So how how long did you go under that that uh, name? Well, I went under that name for for years until I started doing some interviews and using my real name Salvatore Polisi. So I would go, you know, use my real name in Hollywood. I got involved with really cool actors. I mean, I was friends with Ernest Borgnine before he died. I mean, I met a lot of cool people. I got I got a lot of respect there because they they said this guy is the real Chili Palmer. If you remember the Git Jordy, yeah. Yeah. They said He's coming to our party. Meet this guy. He's the real Chili Parma. And that's what they called me. Chili. It was funny. Just goofy stuff happened. I had a big personality. So I had fun. You know, I made mistakes in that business. I wrote the scripts in Hot for Club. A guy got a hold of it. And I went to a party. And he says, give me this script. I'll give you a quarter of a million. You wrote this as a drama. It's not a drama. I go, what do you mean? He's, you're a funny guy. He's, this could be funnier than my blue heaven. And he had won the Academy Award for The Sting. Okay. Give me this script. Give me. And the wife I was with at that time, she said, no, I don't give it to him. 250 is nothing. We can get rich. I didn't give I didn't give him the script. And then we waited years and we wound up making the, the movie Sinatra Club for Peanuts. And, it, you know, it didn't come out the way it should have came out. So I made mistakes. I turned down David Chase. I met David Chase two years before The Sopranos aired. Damn. I sat with him and told him a bunch of stories. It's come work for us. You could be a technical advisor. And I met the two people that were writing for him. They started with nothing. They made good money. And then recently they got very, very rich. They created Blue Bloods. Husband and wife. You know, the Tom Selleck thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They got rich. Uh, nice people. They nice people you know that were real pro writers but i didn't want to be working for somebody else i want to do it myself hollywood is hollywood's a crazy place but i had a lot of fun i learned the business got involved with some production companies got involved with some directors and eventually i got the money to make the sinatra club which was no money you know it's like a million bucks that was nothing nowadays tom cruise uses two million to eat i mean you know. <laughs> yeah I mean, it was kind of interesting in his situation too, Matthews, because with the Sinatra Club, he he had made the movie and then wrote the book about it. And usually, yeah, Spice yeah, so. yeah, the movie got me a book deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was gonna say it's it's well, one, it's funny because I uh, you, you mentioned uh, Ernest Borgnine. Uh, I actually just watched Escape from New York oh, yeah. a few days yeah. ago. Yeah, but. Uh, the other thing is, I was going to say that um, it's funny how many guys that are involved in crime right. go to prison, get out, right. and then get involved in the movie business. Hollywood, yeah. I met a guy who was the Cuban guy. He came in to read for us for Sonata's Club, a little part. He had like two lines, big, heavy set guy. And he came in, he said, do I have to read the sides? You know, when you're casting, you give them a piece of paper, a couple of lines, they read. I said, no, what's your name? He said, Joey. Uh, do what you want. He's let, he's let me do my stick. The guy was amazing. Nobody knew him 14 years ago. It's Joey Diaz. Coco. We've been friends for years. He calls me, invites me to his shows. You know, Joey is a cool guy. He's from, and if you ever saw his show, you'll laugh your ass off. But I did a appearance with him at the Pasadena Ice House. I couldn't believe how fast he is. I mean, he was like Robin Williams fast. You know, amazing quickly, you know, 
interacting with the audience. He brought me up. I gave him a book, and I just got the book out, signed it. And he goes, hey, come on, you guys, stop buying me. I see the woman over there. I get off. She says, hey, I just I just bought your book online. It was like, oh, my God, I'm selling books in a, in a comedy club. you know. But he's a great guy. you know. We've been friends forever. He'll probably come on our show. I, I just like the guy. He's a for real guy you know, because he grew up with Italians. He's really a Cuban guy. He yeah, plays a good Italian. I was gonna say, there's tons of like TikTok clips of him and Joe Rogan, and yeah, every time yeah. I watch him, he's you know, yeah, he's hilarious. He's hilarious. Yeah, he, I I met him, you know, in nine, eight or nine. We did a movie in nine, ten, and then I only lived four four blocks from him, and he had a show back then called Beauty and the Beast or something, and he would call me, would have coffee, and he says, "Hey, you know what? I think my girl's gonna have a baby." I go, "Really?" And uh, so he had a daughter. And then the last week I talked to him. I go, hey, where are you? Is that now? Yeah. What is your daughter doing? Playing softball. She's 10. I go, oh, my God, where'd those 10 years go? I mean, you know, he's back in New York. And he's just a nice guy who's very, very creative. He's really a great guy on stage. Did you ever see him on stage? No. Yeah. No. I mean, I'm in Tampa, Florida. I'm not sure he gets to Tampa, Florida very much. Uh, he's right. all over the country. Yeah. He's <laughs> all over <laughs> Yeah, if he did, I would. That's for damn sure. Yeah, nice guy. Though. You know, he just never forgot. I said, hey, you got to have that part, man. I gave him a little part. And then he did a movie with De Niro. He started getting some movie roles, you know. And you don't forget people when you meet them. You know, he's a good guy. Um. Yeah. He. Uh, so how long... So, I, I don't, so you were only... You only lived under the... Uh, um witness protection name witness protection for what five or six years I oh mean, no no i got the name in 85 and then i split with my first wife 87 met this young gal i was with her 19 years so i did 19 years with that new name oh. so i'd be i would be in the bay area with the new name go to la use the old name make believe i'm chili palm you know try down that way <laughs> But I tell you, good people. I, I mean, one of my best friends wrote Sandlot, and the guy's an amazing writer. So he liked me. We became friends. Then I always got jobs. Hey, come on. I'll give you a couple thousand a week. Come up to Vancouver. We're going to shoot Sandlot too. And I know the guy for 20 years. You know, we were just friends. You know, you meet people, you strike up a friendship. You know, you don't play any games with them. It's interesting because, you know, Hollywood. You know, the mob will kill you with a gun. Hollywood, they'll beat you to death with a pencil. I mean, overall, though, I mean, everything that, you know, we, we talked about today, I mean, it's just, it's a whole different era. So when people think about all these stories and stuff, I yeah. mean, it's, you got to keep in mind, like, like he said, Google didn't exist, uh, yeah. you know, cameras and all that kind of crap. So that's yeah. why he was able to do this kind of stuff. I mean, Sal's turned his life around. I mean, he's not in that you know doesn't have that same mindset he never did any crime after i didn't see this stuff matthew as valuable podcast about 12 or 13 years ago a guy came to me he's a big radio producer he said i heard that you uh changed your ways in life and you used to be a bigot and a racist and all this stuff i go oh yeah i my two kids you know growing up i taught them the right thing i never used any you know racist comments and stuff we want, and, and he says, you were once homophobic. I go, yeah, it was a lot of things. I was taught this crap. Right. I said, but I did a speaking engagement at a editing house. It was about 100 people. 
changing their careers to become editors. And I talked about change, like massive change. And this radio producer said, I want you to go on a show with this woman. I talked to her about you. I go, yeah, who is it? And uh, it turns out that she was, uh, I kind of always forget her name. <laughs> she won Academy Awards. She's a singer. Uh, she's a lesbian. God, everybody knows her. But so I went and I did her show. And we talked about change. And uh, what the heck was her name again? Gosh, I did about an hour with her, you know. I go, I had to make a lot of changes. It wasn't just for me, for my kids. What? Oh, Melissa Etheridge. There it is. <laughs> she said, boy, I wouldn't have been in a room with you, an Italian, you know, uh, an Italian racist and homophobic. I go, well, I had to give all that up when I, so I got a new name and I changed from my way. <laughs> can I, can I come to your house for spaghetti? She <laughs> said, but, you know, you never know who you're going to meet in, in the life in Hollywood and stuff. You know, I made a lot of good friends. Unfortunately, I was too old when I got there. I mean, I should have been there at 25. No, I got there at 50, you know. But I got some stuff done. We had fun. I still got energy. And I got a thousand stories, legitimate ones and illegitimate, you know. <laughs> you better do Matthew B. Cox is a con man, incarcerated in the Federal Bureau of Prisons for a variety of bank fraud-related scams. Despite not having a drug problem, Cox inexplicably ends up in the prison's residential drug abuse program, known as RDAP, a drug program in name only. RDAP is an invasive behavior modification therapy specifically designed to correct the cognitive thinking errors associated with criminal behavior. The program is a non-fiction dark comedy which chronicles Cox's side-splitting journey. This first-person account is a fascinating glimpse at the survivor-like atmosphere inside of the government-sponsored rehabilitation unit. While navigating the treachery of his backstabbing peers, Cox simultaneously manipulates prison policies and the bumbling staff every step of the way. The Program How a Con Man Survived the Federal Bureau of Prisons' Cult of RDAP Available now on Amazon and Audible. Yeah, it's it's funny when I went into prison, you know, I went into prison and I and what I did in prison was I wrote stories. I just wrote started writing guys stories down. You know, if I if you had an interesting story, I would research it. Right. I'd order the Freedom of Information Act, I'd order your case file, I'd, I'd order wow. the, all, everything and just start putting it together and and right. some some of them were books. I uh, wrote about 24, 23, 24 uh, synopsis of stories, like maybe 10, 12,000 words, you know, and, uh, and like, that's one of the things I do now. But while I was writing these stories in prison, guys kept telling me as I got closer to the door, they were like, bro, you gotta, you, you gotta do a podcast. Well, when I really? went, when I got locked up, there was no such thing as a podcast. Right? Like go. YouTube had been out for like a year, Yeah, you know? Facebook had just come out maybe six right. months before I got arrested. So right. I'm like, what's a podcast? Like people right. are like, you know, a podcast. Like, no, I yeah. don't. They don't even realize that that word was invented. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That wasn't a, a common thing. Right. That was something right. they made. So right. I, I started reading articles and got out and said, oh, okay, yeah, I should do a, a podcast when I get, I get it. And, you know, they were saying, oh, true crime's huge. You know, like what's true crime? What are right. you talking about? They're like writing crime, real crime stories. Yeah, like I didn't even know what I was doing. I was doing it. I was already doing this kind of in prison before 
Yeah. Right. I didn't even know it. Yeah, so you yeah, the same I mean the same thing. Then you get out and yeah. And I and I get the whole Hollywood, you know, beating you up with a pen. Like I've had multiple things like stolen. I've had you know, you're watching a TV show and you realize that the producer ripped your stuff off and went right. back and you're right, like, right. wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've had, yeah. It's- a, lot, a lot of copycats. You remember the movie they did about the Four Seasons? What the hell was that name again? It was a big yeah. hit movie. It was about, about Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. There was a bit, it was on stage and became a movie and everything. I can't think of the name of it. It was very popular about 10, 15 years ago. Well, I'm watching the movie with my wife, and I go, did you hear that? They said, what? I said, they ripped off one of our ideas or one of the things we did. She goes, what's that? I go, we were hijacking so many trucks. We would get information from the guys who worked at Kennedy Airport. So we would get especially Italian goods, okay? But we hijacked a truck full of Italian shoes. When I got it over to Jimmy Burke, I would call up because we had to drop the drivers off. I had to hold them for an hour and a half. He said, come over quickly. You got a problem. I go over to the, they call it the drop, the building where the truck was in. Right. He had these shoes laid out. He's got the guy coming, the Jewish guys coming to look at these beautiful Italian shoes. You got a problem. I go, what's the problem? Did you look at the shoes? How can I look at the shoes? We robbed the truck. Now we'll look at them. We got 8,000 pairs of shoes, but they're all left. That what? <laughs> They're all left. Where's the rights? They're going to put it on another truck probably. They didn't want you to get all the shoes, so they sent the left, and the rights are going in another truck. <laughs> what the hell did you do with that? Yeah, that was the 70s. We threw the stuff away. In the meantime, in the movie with Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, they mentioned the shoes. I mean, that was just like was, that. I, I lived it, so they decided to put it. Oh, yeah, we got all kinds of contacts. We get stolen merchandise. Sometimes we got all left shoes from Italy. But that ha- actually happened to us, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, they take your stuff and they use it. That's just the way it is. Seth, be careful with it. <sighs> yeah, I, I was like I always say, look, I'd, I'd rather deal with guys in Hollywood. And rather deal with guys in prison than guys in Hollywood. At least exactly. prison, if it, something goes wrong, you know, it could go wrong for, for the person, you know, fucking right. you over. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? In Hollywood, they just, you know, oh, well, you know, that just happened. Right. You know, yeah. It's always, yeah, it's, it, it's a, that's a rough, it's a rough business. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Much I don't have rough yeah. than crime. Yeah. I don't have any interest in going to Hollywood. I mean, I'd like to sell the rights. You know, we sold the rights to one book. We turned down the rights. I got a big interview coming up with Netflix. It's not coming out for another month or two. And there's mm-hmm. huge, huge interview. And I um, went, to new york last year and when i sat down with the producers from netflix i said what do you guys want she goes you know you're one of the few guys left that could talk about john Gotti." and so suppose i tell you what he did in 1972 suppose i give you the conversations there's no way that's 49 years ago or 50 years ago turn the camera on and we did about an hour of that how did you remember that stuff you can't forget it's something you don't want to forget. It was like fun. You know, it was a game. We were playing a game, like, you know, and I gave them that interview. I'm, I don't know how much they used, you know, because it, it, it's, a, you know, they're going to edit it, stuff out, but it's all good stuff, though, you know, stuff that no one else could talk about. We and can I, mention that, what, what the show is, right, Sal? Yeah, Fear, Fear City. It's season two, I think, believe it is, and it's yeah, they cover the mafia, different yeah. families and stuff, and 
Yeah, so, so they got Sal on there making an appearance. And they, I think they had on the first season, like John A. Light, uh, Michael Andy. Francis, yeah, guys like that. And it was really good. I enjoyed it. So Sal has that coming out. They were pretty secretive. One day I said to the producer, hey, I want to know one thing. Did you get Anthony Ruggiano and interview him? Oh, we can't tell you. So then I reached out. <laughs> I heard Anthony was interviewed. So then no. she, the producer sent me a, a text message. Boy, oh boy, you guys are like thick as thieves. He knew you and you knew him. And yeah, well, please don't tell anybody else. We got him also. So, you know, I mean, it was interesting how they think they're doing secretive stuff on television, but it leaks out. Was it uh, John A. Light? I had him on. Uh, I had him too. What about, uh, what's the, oh shoot, uh, Michael Michael Dowd? Yeah, uh, the corrupt cop. I I watched the one that you did. Oh, yeah. I, I did. I did get a call once from an FBI agent years ago when A Light, you know, came out sort of like he wanted to go straight, and he said, "Look, could you mention this guy?" You know, I said, "I don't have a problem with him, but every once in a while, he he talks about John Gotti. John A Light was about ten, twelve years old when we had the right. Sinatra Club. How could he know any of this? He, he's a good researcher, so I did." <laughs> I don't bad mouth anybody. I just let it go. You know, it's okay. Oh, l- listen, I, I did a, um, every interview I did two interviews with, um, with him, the comment section, they, they, they hate, I've never, I, I've never seen anybody get so much hate. Really? I mean, they just hammer him, hammer away at him. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's, you know, he's nice to me. He's polite to me. He was, seemed, seemed like a nice guy, but then again, I wouldn't know what's true and what's not true. Right. Right. We weren't there. No. <laughs> Sal was, no. but I wasn't there. No. Me and Matthew, we weren't there. So no. I mean, we're just person talking about Cuba and being friends with Batista. I'd be like, Oh, okay. He knew I don't know. He, he, he got a conversation with Trump. Didn't he? <laughs> Did he? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah there's yeah, a picture of them. Yeah. Trump. Yeah. Well, Him and Trump know. took a picture together and then well, Trump also took one. With uh, Joey Marlino, the the alleged boss of the Philadelphia. I was in prison with Joey Marlino. Well, what? Really? Yeah, I had lunch with him a couple of times, and um, and uh, you know, quiet, nice guy, kept to himself. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, seemed like a nice guy, you know. Uh, <laughs> I I do like to talk about the guys that I met in Lewisburg. I'm going to do a presentation for Adrian because I think. It's really a stage play. It's so good because all the guys were there. They ran the prison. And if you remember in Goodfellas when Paulie was slicing the garlic, I was yeah, in yeah. that room. I was in that room. But the guys that were there were old school. Oh God, they were old school. You know, how did I know I was going to play chess with Phil Chicken, Phil Testa, who later Boss was the blown up in Philadelphia, and then what's his name uh, did a song on him. Uh, what the hell's his name? Uh. I can't recall. Atlantic City album. Mm-hmm. It is song, the famous uh, singer, you know, so who would know that in Lewisburg that year there was a dozen guys that movies were going to be done about, like Frank Lucas. Right. You know, and uh, it was just interesting that at the time, those people, nobody knew who they were and where they were going. Henry was in prison with me. I mean, I used to laugh at Henry. Henry's assignment was to steal meat out of the butcher shop. Bring it to Paul. I mean, you know, it, it was just a, a way of life. And there was no telephones in prison that year. They didn't get no. there till 75. And the most exciting three days of my prison time was on the 8th 
of August when Nixon got up and resigned and he said, I'm not a crook. We yeah. all ran around the prison block looking at each other like, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus, I'm not a crook. And we laughed because we knew he was a crook. I mean, that stuff filtered down. Then two days later, there was an escape in Lewisburg. It was the first escape ever. And there was a guy there who skyjacked an airplane. They thought he was D.B. Cooper. And he later went to North Carolina and the feds killed him. He was a bank robber. So it was pretty exciting being there, looking at all the stuff that was going on and all the guys that were there. I mean, there was legendary guys from what they called the Purple Gang from Harlem. I mean, you had every group you can imagine from New York because it was the beginning of drug sentences, like big, big time, 10 years, 20 years. Fat GG in Galice. I said, Gigi, you don't talk about your time. No, nobody could fucking talk about my time. I'm doing 56 fucking years. I don't want to hear about a guy who's doing five years. And eventually yeah. he had the cases thrown out and he got he got released. But bigger than life guy. I mean, I could tell you a story about him for 20, 30 minutes. You'd shake your head. He was just <laughs> an amazing guy. I mean, he's just the things that he did on the street were legendary. And so that's why Chaz Palmateri put him in Bronxdale. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's so uh, essentially, yes, he was, Sal had, was in prison with a lot of guys. I mean, there, there was a lot of from, you know, the five New York crime families, of course. And then surprisingly too, the, the, a lot of guys from the Philadelphia crime family that would go on to be in a lot of internal wars and be high level ranking guys. So Sal got to be around them when they were really young and experience what they were like and stuff like yeah. that. And it's it's just crazy. I mean, where he was at and how and what a big coincidence that he ended up there with all them at the same time. That fat GG said to me, when you leave here, because I had an appeal working, I knew I was going to win. I won my appeal. I mean, I got 25 years. I do one year. He said, when you leave here, just remember one thing. Don't ever look like don't ever think prison is the Department of Corrections. I go, what do you call it? It's the Department of Connections. He said <laughs> This is where you make all your connections. Yeah, listen, I, I used to say I went into prison with like a, a GED and fraud and walked out with a, a master's degree. Like, yeah, yeah. You, you learn a lot. Like, oh, yeah. a lot. Yeah. A lot There's guys, a lot man. of smart guys. There's a lot of smart guys in there. And you go, well, gee, was he so smart? How'd he get busted? Well, same old story. You know? Yeah, everybody's going to get busted. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, do you want. I mean, do you have anything else you want to throw at him before we, I suppose, I mean, yeah. I guess we're almost to that hour. Ask me whatever, Matthew. I, no. <laughs> I, so, I don't have anything. I'm, I'm, what I, it's so funny because I'm sitting here and as we're talking about this, I'm thinking that would make a good TikTok reel. That yeah. would make a good TikTok. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's a good two-minute story. That's a good three-minute. But um, no, I was just thinking when I went to, uh, I was at the medium security prison in Coleman for about three years. And I remember when I first got wow. there, I was sitting at the, uh, um, I was sitting at a table one time with these guys and, you know, and they're just, it was like when I first got there, like, you know, everybody's pretty quiet and I forget what happened. Somebody said, I, I don't know what, I don't know what I said, but I ended up saying, yeah, man, I got 26 years and because yeah. um, I, I did, I had 26 years and I remember somebody goes, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good bit of time. I got 30 years and, mm. and I, 
and I turn around and the guy, another guy, black guy sitting across from me looked up at me and he goes, I'm never leaving. Oh my God. And I thought, stop complaining about your time. (laughs) Nobody. How much time did you do out of the 26? 13. I did 13, about almost 13 years. Yeah. For for paper crime? Yeah. Oh my God. I was a maker. I did 13 months. Oh boy! Wow! They were very upset with me. Oh best! <laughs> wow! Did yeah. You make restitution? No, I still owe six million, but I'm good for it. Oh, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> I'm making payment. Yeah, I heard a guy. I heard a guy once said, you know, they said you owe how many two three million, and the judge said, well, when are you going to stop paying? He said, I'll pay, pay soon, you know, but. uh It'd probably take me the rest of my life. How much you plan on sending in every month? It's twenty five dollars. Yeah. <laughs> oh, buddy, <laughs> you owe all that money, and Michael doesn't owe anything. That's evil. And it's yeah. crazy how that works, man. Yeah, I, he got a de- he got a deal. Yeah. You know, but I got to tell you one thing: I've never told this story before. You know, because the mob. Prison life, criminals, you know, you got the good, the bad, the ugly, you know. And I had two kids who I loved, and I never once struck them. Two kids who grew up to be football players, you know. And I had this stockbroker in the 70s. He would come over on Wednesday night because I had bogus names in the stock market. I'd give him 10000 20000 30000 I was the junkie because I played puts and calls. I was gambling with the stock market because I thought it was sophisticated. I thought I was cool. He would come over on Wednesday. My first wife would make a nice Italian dinner, and he'd be there at 6. We'd eat at 6.37. He'd stay an hour or so, give me the envelope of money, and that would be that. So it was probably in the fall. I remember this. And my kid was 10 years old, my oldest son. I said to my wife, where's Sal Jr.? I don't know. So came time for dinner. We got to eat dinner. Jim is here. Let's have dinner. So we had dinner. He comes in. He's 10 years old. Like two hours later, filthy, dirty. Do you know anything about New York? Nothing. Do you know anything about New York? Have you ever heard of Coney Island? Yeah. 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 Okay. That's where they have the hot dog contest. I go, What were you doing? He said, I was helping my friend Joey. His father was cleaning the the garage. I go, Joey? Joey's the beal? And his father was cleaning the garage. He says, Yeah, he's cleaning the garage. I said, Come here. I slapped him in the face like, like that. I said, you lying little shit. You weren't by Joey's house. <laughs> How do you know, Dad? They found Joey last year in the back seat of a car with two bullets in his head. Damn. Now, tell the truth. Where were you? I went to Coney Island. I was riding the Ferris wheel. <laughs> so that was in 78. I got to tell you, like years later, I bought him a brand new Trans Am. He went to college. He played college football. And one day he disappeared. I called him up. I go, where were you? Dad, I was at Joey's house. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask. You know, (laughs) that's one of the funny stories about being an Italian father, but I never struck the kid. Just one slap. And I said, don't ever lie again. He never lied to me again. That's all it took. (laughs) Oh, he fathered it. I said, not only but Joey's father was whacked, and guess what? Joey's uncle, they found him in the backseat of the car. He was whacked. The whole family got whacked out. They were doing bad things. 
Oh, I'm well, so sorry to hear you did 13 years. Oh my God. I'm embarrassed. Fine. <laughs> I, I try to, you know, listen, the, the, you know, what the problem is I, I, you know, I started off and I was complaining, right? I, I got, I got 12 years knocked off my sentence. So technically I'm supposed to be in prison right now. My wow. outdate, my outdate was 2030. That didn't have to happen. Wow. I was lucky. I'm glad. I mean, I, I, I did everything I could to, to, to get those off. Yeah. But you know, the truth is, do I, I think, you know, I don't think I, I deserve to go to prison. I don't think I deserved. I probably deserve 10 years, but not that that's too much time, but it's not well with game time. Maybe I would have done five or six, but the bottom line is that, you know, like you don't get to make that choice. Like it's not up to me. And the other thing is that, you know, honestly for every, you know, every time I start to bitch about it, I think about, I think about some, some black kid who brought a gun to a $10 crack sale and is doing 30 years. Right. Because fucking stupid, stupid law. Or somebody yeah. who was selling drugs to people that wanted the drugs, yeah. and they had a little bit too much, and they got some twenty-year minimum mandatory. And right, right. You know I'm saying like there's so many unfair yeah. um, sentences. I, right. I don't, I don't, I try not to bitch about it. And, yeah. and listen, I made the best of it. Yeah, it, it's just like you, like like you know, look, what would have been a good life? You know, getting a job at a reg a regular job and raising right. a family and being a soccer dad and Right. That's like the right thing. I wish sometimes I think, well, I wish that's what I'd done. Like it just didn't work out like that. Right. I, I have different memories. Yeah. You know, but I have, I have compassion. And after January, I told Adrian, we've got to start talking about criminal justice reform. And anytime you want to do a program, get another person, an attorney or somebody, I would love to talk about that because we are so in need of criminal justice reform. Years ago, when you went in, they had mandatory sentencing. They took mm -hmm. away the judge's power, and that always bothered me. Yeah. Well, it, it, it leaves no room for, for, for doubt. It, well, it leaves no room to say, hey, there are extenuating circumstances here. Yeah. Like, sometimes you, yeah. don't, sometimes you don't have a choice. You know, you're born into a... Listen, you're born into a criminal... Basically, a family, but a criminal right. organization... And you were never given a choice, right. but to do anything else. So, right. so you know, I, I just, I don't know. It there's just no good answer. But I, I'll tell you what's what's not a solution is what's not a solution is spending eleven thousand dollars to educate a student a year and spending thirty thousand dollars to house somebody <laughs> when yeah. you know right. that people with education don't commit as much crime as people without an education. Exactly. exactly. Why wouldn't you just say, hey, every one probation officer can watch 25 guys. So why wouldn't you just let these guys out? Why do you even have a camp? They have out custody. You could put them on ankle monitors. You could, with today's right. technology, you could monitor where all these guys are. You could have red zones. They can drop the course. Drop the right. course. I mean, like what? What? What are you doing? Like it's doing nothing but getting votes. It's all about votes. And it's big business. Yeah. Oh, yeah. money. Twenty, out, uh, 20, 20 and thirty year sentences yeah. for filling out some paperwork. Right. Like that's ridiculous. And some of these sentences are just fucking outrageous, and they don't change anything. Does it reduce crime? Well, we're gonna have to think about doing something. And education is the answer, Nancy. Like you said, if you can educate these people. You know, I always said to an FBI friend of mine, why don't we go in there 
and show them how much technology and DNA is available and say, don't commit crime. You have no chance. Educate them. They say, oh my God, I'll be caught in five minutes. You listen, I always thought, I used to always say, you know what they ought to do? They ought to teach a class in every high school or middle school on this, the federal sentencing guidelines. Oh my God. And let kids know that they're like, wait a minute. I've just been selling dime bags. No, you sold 30 pounds of pot. Right. Because you oh, you add all of that up and right. you, they'll call it ghost dope. And you got caught with 30 pounds of pot. Now you're going to do five years. They go five years. Yeah. How am I going to do? No, no, no. I just sound little, yeah. little tight, 20, 30. Mm. But no, not how it works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you start telling them how it works and they'll go nuts. Yeah. They'll be like, oh, no, I, don't, I, don't. You said it. Education's the end. Yeah, that is what true. That would be a smart. Guys will call me and say, uh, you know, hey, bro, like I, I'll give you five grand and you'll just tell me how this works. I'm like, uh, uh-uh. uh, I'm already on the conspiracy. No, <laughs> I'm already on the indictment. Right. You're going to get caught. No, I would never tell on you. Well, let's pretend that's true, which I don't right. believe. But assume it's true. They're going to get your phone. They're going to run my phone number. They're going to see that my net, who I am. They're going to run my record and they're, they're not even going to, they're just going to add me to the indictment. Right. And then I'm going to go to trial. I can't take the stand to explain what happened because they'll bring up my past record and the jury will convict me on the fact that I've been in prison for doing the same thing that you got caught with, even though I just told you, no, click. Yeah. People just don't understand how it works. Yeah. And yep. that Rico, man, I mean, that's a whole, a whole other thing, man. Yeah, and conspiracy, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. The government, you know, I mean, maybe Trump has a shot, but, you know, years ago, they used to have a 92% conviction. I don't know how he's going to beat the case. I don't know. Who knows? Oh, it's, it, it's up yeah. to like 97% now. Yeah, yeah. Although, let's face it, it, if you have money, it does equal the... It does equal the uh, or um, semi, you know, helps level the playing field right. to yeah. a degree. Yeah, that's true. But we'll yeah. see. We'll Go see away. how it pans out with him. But uh, before we do stop, Sal, I was going to say. Uh, so our our Patreon channels uh, called a, a Lifetime of Mafia Tales with Salvatore Polisi, and then my name's Adrian Martinez. So you can look it up on Patreon, and then our YouTube is uh, Invest in Yourself Podcast and it's all together it's invest in yourself podcast and a lifetime of mafia tales i know it's a long name but me and sound just partnered up so <laughs> it's well, well yeah. you know what we'll do is uh we'll I'll, uh colby will put your your youtube link and your patreon link okay. in the uh in the description box cool perfect cool. perfect yeah i'll send thank it over you. thank you Matthew. you appreciate it yeah i appreciate you spending the next uh the last hour with me i like hearing your history because it opens my eyes oh my god yeah, really. he has a whole wow. other perspective on this other yeah, side. Really. <laughs> hey, this is Matthew Cox, and I appreciate you guys uh, checking out the video. Do me a favor and hit the subscribe button, hit the bell so you get notified of videos just like this. Check the description box for Sal and Adrian's YouTube link and their Patreon. And thanks for checking out the uh, the video.